So the, the sermon, usually, usually the worship time sort of leads us into the Word, but today we're going to let the Word lead us into worship. Are you guys okay with that? So there will be some more singing time at the end of the message, so I'm looking forward to that. So in our History of Redemption series, that's what we're going through, the History of Redemption, we've come to uh, what I believe and what many have called the high point in Old Testament redemptive history. Sounds kind of technical, but it's, it's kind of the apex of, of Israel's history. It's the best of times. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12, if you've been with us, God made some promises to Abraham. He called Abraham from, the, uh, from Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham is probably just a pagan guy, and God comes to him and he says, uh, uh, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Huge, huge promises, huge promises. God promises Abraham a land. He promises, I mean, none of, this is, Abraham is it. He's the only guy. There's no Israel. There's no nothing. He's the first, he's the father of the Jewish people. He's the first one. And he promises him a land. He promises him a great nation, a great name, and a blessing that, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And now it's a thousand years later. It's really 4,000 or so years later for us. But a thousand years later, we come to this book called First Kings. It's the beginning of the reign of King Solomon. We've all heard of Solomon. We talked about him last week as we studied the Proverbs. And these promises that God gave to Solomon, I mean to Abraham, are coming to pass. God promised a land. And during Solomon's reign, Israel had more land than, than they ever had before or ever would again. God promised a great nation and a great name. And under Solomon's rule, Israel became a, a world power, really. They were comparable to uh, Assyria or Egypt, those empires of the day. God promised that they would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, we read, Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. The whole earth is seeking God's wisdom. It's amazing. All the nations of the earth are being blessed in and through the wisdom of Solomon given to him by God. One writer put it this way, under Solomon, you have God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and in God's blessing. What God promised Abraham is now being fulfilled in the reign of Solomon. This is the high point in Israel's history. And that's good news and it's bad news. It's good news because the promises of God are being fulfilled. You're at this apex. But it's also bad news because when you're at the high point, what's next? You start going down. I mean, if I said, like, the high point of my marriage was 10 years ago, that would be kind of a bummer, right? Because what's been happening for the last... That's not true, by the way. The high point is now and continues to go up, you know. So, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom will be divided, Subsequent kings and the people are going to fall to idolatry. And eventually, God's judgment will come upon them. Israel will lose their land, they'll lose their nation, they'll lose their name, and their blessing 
among the families of the earth will be gone. But we're not there yet. Before we start going downhill, which begins pretty soon now, uh, I want us to camp out at this high point. Because what we find is, is at this high point is extravagant worship. Extravagant worship. That's what we see in 1 Kings. We see God's people in God's place, under God's rule, in God's blessing, and the result is exa- extravagant worship in Israel. So let's, let's, let's take that. That's the title of this message, uh, extravagant worship. So let's define that, okay? Two words. Uh, what, is it, what does extravagant mean? When you think of extravagant, what comes to mind? Lavish. Over the top. That's good. Good picture. Over the top. Anything else? Say that again. Fervent. Is that what you said? Yes, fervent. High. Over the top. Some would say much more than necessary. Some would say wasteful, going beyond what is deserved. Highly excessive. I think that's a good definition. We'll look highly excessive. Excessively high. Okay, so extravagant. We sort of have that. Now, now worship. What, what, what do you think of when you think of worship? Say it again. Praising God. Okay, excellent. Giving praise to God. Other, other thoughts. Connecting with God. Come on, we do this all the time. We work. Adoration. Glorifying God. Honoring. So we're focusing on God. You know, I mean, you can worship a lot of things, but we're, this is a, we're focusing on worshiping God, which is good. So, so reverence, awe, adoration, all those things. The Hebrew word actually means, uh, I'll picture it for you, it means this. I'm, too, I'm getting old, but it means to bow down before. That's the Hebrew word. And so it means all those things, to revere, to honor, to bow down before in homage and reverence. Extravagant worship, giving excessively high reverence and honor to God, to bow down before Him. Now, worship of God is seen throughout uh, Israel's history, Okay? It, be, it began, begins with Adam and Eve, right? They're in, this, in the garden in this perfect, worshipful relationship with the Lord. But then sin enters in. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, the fall. And that relationship is broken. In fact, sin is a break in worship. It's showing that you, no long, you don't truly revere and honor God. When you sin, you're, you're, you're like doing the opposite of worship. Worship is revering and honor God. Sinning is saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, not what God wants me to do. And since the fall, the rest of redemptive history, which is that's what we're looking at, is this attempt to reclaim the reality of that true worshipful relationship that was lost in the garden. Just a few examples of worship in the Old Testament. Abel, remember Abel, brought sacrifices to the Lord. Didn't go so well because his brother didn't like it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they built altars to worship the Lord. We see this throughout Genesis. Then in Exodus, when God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, from slavery, they responded with worship. Uh, Exodus chapter 15, go there, read it, just a couple verses. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider 
He's thrown into the sea. Remember the picture of the, the, the parting of the Red Sea and they come through and God wipes out the Egyptians and saves His people. The Lord is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. And it just goes on, that whole chapter, and, and worship and adoration of this God who's delivered them from Egypt. The law. The law is, in, is filled with uh, worship, commands about worship. The, the, the first commandment in the Ten Commandments is, anyone? Kids? No kids. You'll love the, I mean, I'm sorry, it's not. So you'll have no other, God, sorry, that's in Deuteronomy later. You'll have no other gods before the Lord. So that you'll worship Him and Him alone, Right? Joshua, in Joshua 5, he bows before the Lord. Gideon, in, in Judges, chapter 7, worships God. Hannah, in her prayer, in 1 Samuel, if you read that, chapter 2, worships God. And the, maybe the biggest example of, us, of it all, David and others write this amazing book of Psalms, book of songs called Psalms, the purpose for worshiping God. One example, I mean, we could spend all day just examples in the Psalms. I will extol you, Psalm 145, 1 through 3, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Bow down before the Lord. So, yes, there's worship before the reign of Solomon, and worship will continue after. Solomon's reign, the prophets will over and over again call people to return to the Lord, to worship their God. They're worshiping foreign gods, and the prophets will say, come back to the Lord. And then when Israel is removed from their land, even when they're in exile, there are people worshiping uh, the Lord. Remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and away we go, I mean Abednego. They worship the Lord with their, with their, their offerings. There are those like Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel who lead the people back to Jerusalem after the exile to establish a nation and again rebuild the temple even to establish worship of the Lord. So, so worship is found throughout the Old Testament scriptures. But this morning I want us to focus on this high point of Old Testament worship. 1 Kings chapter 8, where the, the first thing I want us to see is Israel's place uh, uh, of worship. Israel's place of worship was extravagant. The place of worship was the temple, and it's extravagant. 1 Kings chapter 8 is really the, the dedication of the temple. Chapters 5 through 7 sort of record the building of the temple. And it's extravagant in every sense of the world. No expense is spared. Solomon gets the best builders, the best craftsmen from far and wide. He searches a country surrounding the best of the best. He uses the best materials. He uses gold and other precious materials. He uses cedars of Lebanon and olive wood and cypress. There are enormous columns of stone with bronze covering them. The temple was extravagant. Then in 1 Kings chapter 8, we come to the dedication of this temple. It's extravagant, and all of Israel is present. Everybody comes. Uh, 1 Kings 8.1, we read, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. Verse 2, and all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at a feast. There's a massive celebration going on. Verse 3, and all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. The priests take the ark of the covenant. They move it from 
the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle? That's what the, the children of Israel built when they were wandering in the desert. It's really just a tent. Now, we've got a big upgrade now. It's the temple. So they take the Ark of the Covenant and they move it to the temple, into the Holy of Holies. That's the place with the, the veil. Only once a year will the high priest go in there. And then in verse 5, so they've got the Ark and the Holy of Holies, verse 5, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the Ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. So many they couldn't count. They lost count. This is an extravagant display of sacrificial worship to the Lord. All this takes place, what we've just talked about, before Solomon's prayer of dedication. This is sort of a a pre-worship to this this prayer. And then look at verse 62. 1 Kings chapter 8. It's 66 verses long. It's pretty, pretty long. After the dedication of the temple, there was worship before and then worship after. Verses 62, then the king and all of Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000, I guess they didn't lose count, I don't know how, sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. That's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of livestock. Think of the sound. Think of the animals and the blood that's flowing I mean, it's extravagant, it's over-the-top, excessive sacrifice to God. The best builders, the best materials, all the people, all the sacrifices. And you might wonder, you might be thinking, I certainly did, isn't this a bit much? Isn't this a bit much? Couldn't it have been just a bit simpler? Couldn't they have had less expensive material and maybe a, a smaller feast, less animal sacrifices? Then they could have had plenty of leftover. They could have given some to the poor. On a smaller scale, uh, Jesus sort of faced this question in his ministry. When, when Lazarus' sister, you remember the story, Mary anointed him with very expensive uh, oil, perfumed oil. His disciples had a problem with this apparent waste of resources. They said, why couldn't the oil have been sold and the money given to the poor? And you remember what Jesus said. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, that statement sounds kind of a, a little bit un-Jesus-like, right? I mean, doesn't Jesus care about the poor? He came to preach uh, a freedom for the, the poor, Isaiah says. The fact is, Jesus isn't giving any commentary on caring for or not caring for the poor. We're certainly supposed to do that, right? I'm, t- I'm looking at you guys. Yeah. Oh, they don't know what I'm saying here. It's, it's hard. Anyway, uh, We're certainly supposed to do that. Jesus simply is illustrating the importance, not the unimportance of the poor, but the importance of him, not me, him. He's illustrating his own importance, that he is worthy of extravagant worship. Again, it's what we see in 1 Kings 8. They build an extravagant temple. They sacrifice extravagant number of animals. They worship and celebrate the living God in extravagant ways. And then, and then it's all over. And in verse 66, uh, they say that they, it says that they went to their homes joyfully and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. So this is the culmination of the things David had prom- uh, God had promised to David through the people. And they didn't go home thinking, oh, that was such a waste. 
Couldn't we have done more with our money, with our time? No, they went home with glad hearts for all the goodness that the Lord had shown them. They rejoiced in their extravagant place of worship because, this is our second point, Israel's person of worship. Israel's person of worship, Yahweh, the living God, was extravagant. We see God's extravagant all over the place. And I'm just going to, there's more than this, I'm just going to point out three, three ways. Three, three ways we see God's extravagance. First, we see His extravagant grace. In grace, God dwelt among His people. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, we read, When the priests came out of the holy place, they've taken the ark in, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister before the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord fills the house of the Lord. The priests went into the Holy of Holies. The glory of the Lord uh, comes in. God's presence goes in. And, and they have to back out. It's so glorifying. It's so amazing. And we can't forget who these people were. They, like you and me, uh, were sinful, rebellious people. But God, in grace, uh, in grace beyond measure, chose to dwell among them. He chose to be their God and to provide through the law and through the sacrificial system and the temple a way for them to experience His presence among them. The extravagant grace of God caused Him to dwell among a sinful people. So God shows extravagant grace. He also shows extravagant faithfulness. In faithfulness, God fulfilled His word. In verse 23, Solomon Solomon prays, O Lord God of Israel, There is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with their heart. You have kept with your your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled it this day. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You've fulfilled it this day. Think about all the promises that God has made. Just a a few. We talked about some of them. God had promised them a nation, and now they're a great nation. God had promised them a land, and now they inhabit the promised land. It's there. God promised them a temple, and now they're in the temple, worshiping. The temple is done. God had promised a throne for the son David, and now David's son Solomon sits on the throne. God promised them his presence among them. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he's come down, and he's dwelling in this temple. No wonder Solomon says in verse 56, not one word has failed of all his good promises which he spoke by Moses, his servant. He's hearkening back to all the promises that God gave to Moses. God is so different, so different than we are, isn't he? We make promises. We make promises to our spouses, to our employers, to our church. Even we make promises to ourselves. And so often we we fail to keep them. At the beginning of this year, I promised myself, I promised my wife, I was going to lose 10% of my weight. Well, there you go. (laughs) Fail. Fail to keep my promises. I still got a little time, so you can pray for me in that. Anyway, but not so with God. Everything that God promises with his mouth, he will do with his hand. He is over the top, 100%, exceedingly faithful to fulfilling His Word. God shows extravagant grace, extravagant faithfulness, 
And he shows extravagant mercy. In mercy, God forgave their sins. During Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple in verse 30, he prays this. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Forgive. During all this activity of this chapter, it's 66 verses long. There's sacrificing, there's dedicating, there's prayers. It's easy to miss that the heart of this passage is not actually the temple that's being dedicated. The point is not that Israel now has a building that they can go worship in. The point is they now have a place where God dwells. A place where they can find redemption. A place where they can receive forgiveness for their sin. That's, that, that's a phrase, there's a phrase in this chapter that's repeated over and over again as Solomon acknowledges, uh, acknowledges that the people are sin, uh, sinless, sinful, rebellion. They'll sin, they'll rebel against God. He repeats again and again. Verse 34. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people. Verse 39. Verse 36. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants. Verse 39. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive. And then down in verse 49. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer, their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Solomon's praise God for his grace and his faithfulness. And so it's, it's like in this moment of boldness, he says, uh, well, let me just go ahead and be honest with you, God. This is the high point, but uh, we both know that your people will sin against you. God, you're full of grace and you're full of faithfulness, but we respond as a people, we're going to respond with faithlessness. So we're dependent on your extravagant mercy to forgive our sins. Many years later, in exile, uh, he's been taken out of the land. Daniel makes this aspect of God's character clear, who God is. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. That's, that's, That's how we see. We would never know that God was merciful and forgiving if we didn't rebel against him, right? If we were perfect. But God reveals his mercy and forgiveness because we rebel. We all have sinned. And it's only because of His extravagant mercy that we can be forgiven. Extravagant grace, extravagant faithfulness, extravagant mercy. And, and you sort of put those all together and, and you have this, uh, it's not in your notes, but you can, you can jot it down. You have also this extravagant love pictured in God. God loves His people extravagantly. It's just seen throughout. So what we see in 1 Kings is this extravagant worship of an extravagant God. And the question is, the question is, what does, what does this mean for our worship? What does this mean under the new covenant? Remember we've talked about the old covenant Israel was under, and then when Christ came, through Christ's sacrifice, we're now under a new covenant under his, in His blood. So, so what does it look like for us? What does extravagant worship in the church look like? Now we could stop and just say, okay, uh, application time. We need to follow Israel's example. We have the same extravagant God, and therefore our worship must be just as extravagant as theirs. That's not enough. That's not enough. Think about it for a minute. What we just saw it, it was this high point in Old Testament, Old Covenant worship. And if we see extravagant worship in the Old Covenant, follow me, and they were worshiping under 
in the Old Testament, and they're worshiping under the Old Covenant with only symbols and shadows. Symbols and shadows. And we're worshiping under the New Covenant where the symbols and shadows of the Old Covenant have become reality in Jesus Christ. If we see extravagant worship in Israel... What kind of radical, sacrificial, extravagant worship should we see in our lives and in our church? Because, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that the church's Savior is extravagant. Under the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, we saw extravagant grace. In grace, God dwells among His people. Listen to this. This gives me, uh, like, goose pimples. Is that right? Under the new covenant in Jesus Christ in the church, we see extravaganter great. Is that a word? Extravaganter? It's like infinity. Can you be beyond more? In grace, Jesus dwells not among his people, but within his people, within us. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then He, in all of His glory, dwells. And that that word dwell means to tabernacle, to, to dwell, to temple within you. He lives within your heart. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, lives within you. It's as if uh, we are little Solomon's temples walking around. What amazing, extravagant grace Jesus gives by entering into our lives, giving us His presence moment by moment, day by day. No need to journey to the temple because Jesus, by grace, has journeyed to the cross. No need to make sacrifices because Jesus, in grace, has given His life as a sacrificial offering for us. By grace, Jesus journeys into our lives. In Jesus Christ, there's extravagant grace. And in Jesus, there's also extravagant faithfulness. Under the Old Covenant, we saw extravagant faithfulness. In faithfulness, God fulfilled His Word. But under the New Covenant, in Jesus Christ, in the church, extravaganter faithfulness. In faithfulness, Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. The first verse of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Drop down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He walked among us. He lived among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does it mean that Jesus is the Word? We don't have time to go into the, uh, the ramifications of deep theology here. But what I want us to see is that Jesus, being the Word, means that Jesus reveals who God is and what God does. He tells the story of God, so to speak. Like the, like the words of an autobiography tells us about the author. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see who God is, how God acts. Under the Old Covenant, we saw that God was faithful to His Word. But under the New Covenant, we see that He is faithful to His Word through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, is the Word because through Him, every part of God's Word is fulfilled. 
Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Him they're fulfilled. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul writes, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. The Old Testament is full of promises that are faithfully fulfilled by God, but they're faithfully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Just a couple of examples. We've seen uh, some in, in, redemptive, in the redemptive history already. In the beginning, at the fall, Genesis 3.15, God promised. It's a little bit cryptic. We sort of know what it means. I put, he's saying to, to, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will, crush, you will bruise his heel. And on the cross, Jesus fulfilled this promise Defeating Satan, defeating sin, defeating death. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we talked about this already. God promised uh, Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This began to be fulfilled with Solomon, but is now being fully fulfilled in Christ Jesus as his representatives, his church, his body takes the gospel to all the families, to the nations of the earth. There's no greater blessing that a person or a people can receive than the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They're being blessed. And even in our reading this week, God repeats to Solomon the promise given to his father David. I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. And Jesus is the man who will sit on David's throne throughout all eternity. It's Solomon, and then there were some kings, and there's this break, and then Jesus comes, and he is the eternal king. And those are just a few of the promises we've seen so far. There are many more that we didn't mention and more to come, all of which are faithfully fulfilled by the one who is the word of God, revealing God to us, Jesus Christ. So in Jesus, we have extravagant grace, extravagant faithfulness, and one more, extravagant mercy. Under the Old Covenant, we saw extravagant mercy. In mercy, God forgave their sins. But under the New Covenant, in Jesus Christ, in the church, again, extravagant mercy. In mercy, Jesus became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, in in some merciful and mysterious way, was made sin. He becomes sin. On the cross, He took on our sin. He took on the wrath of God that belonged on us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's only because of Christ that those people in the Old Testament, as they made the pictures, the sacrifices, it's, it's really through the blood of Christ that they're saved and that we're saved. Because Jesus became sin. Those who trust in Him receive what they don't deserve. We receive extravagant mercy. For we not only escape eternal death, which we do deserve, but we're given eternal life. It would be enough just to escape the death. That would be enough. That would be mercy. Uh, but, But to also receive everlasting life in the presence of the living God for all eternity. That's extravagant mercy beyond description. So I hope, I pray, that we all see just how extravagant our Savior is. 
In him, we find extravagant grace, extravagant faithfulness, extravagant mercy. And and let's put those all together. And this is just extravagant love he has for us. It's amazing love that Jesus has for his people. Jesus is an extravagant Savior. Therefore, it follows, I hope, Jesus deserves extravagant worship. Jesus deserves extravagant worship. I hope that's obvious. But it might not be obvious what that looks like for us in the church, right? Because it doesn't look like what we saw in 1 Kings chapter 8. We're not under the old covenant. We're not the nation Israel. We don't build extravagant temples for God to come and dwell in. We don't make uh, animal sacrifices. So what should extravagant worship look like in our lives and in our church? And to fully understand that, I think that would be like a series of sermons So since uh, we're at the end of our time here, I just want to give you a a few things to think about uh, what it means for this new covenant believer, for us uh, who've trusted in Jesus Christ to extravagantly worship God. Look again at 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Think about this. Under the Old Covenant, the temple was what? The temple was the place of worship. But under the New Covenant, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, we often use this verse to say, uh, this means we need to take care of our, our bodies, our physical health. Okay, whatever. But the meaning of this verse is that our, your body is now the place of worship. You worship God not in an external uh, building, in a place but you worship God with your entire life. That's why Paul continues at the end of verse 19 and verse 20. He says, you are not your own, brothers and sisters. You were bought with a price, so glorify, worship, honor God in your body. Body means body, soul, spirit, all of you. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then your body, who you are, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body, who you are, your life is the place of worship. It's where worship happens because you're not only, uh, you're not your own. You're bought, you're paid for by the precious blood of, of Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify, honor, worship God in who you are. Worship God extravagantly in every way possible. Not just in church on Sunday morning, which is very necessary as we gather as the body of Christ and together lift up His name, but also worship God at all times. Christian, you honor, you glorify God, your extravagant Savior, with your life, with how you live. Let me conclude by just encouraging you in five practical, as me quick, five practical ways to extravagantly worship God. There are certainly more than five, but let's uh, just start here. First, worship with extravagant giving to God. Each one of you must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I know we just had a sermon on, on giving a couple weeks ago, but part of worship is releasing what God is giving you back to him. Know that God loves, God is honored and glorified by a cheerful giver. This applies to our financial giving, but it also applies to the giving of our time. 
and our efforts. Give God the time He deserves in your life. Give God the time He deserves in your life. Extravagant time. Worship Him by spending time in His presence. Praying, reading His Word, serving Him. Worship God by giving Him extravagant amounts of all He's given you. Second, worship with extravagant obedience to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your whole self, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You're not your own. You belong to God. Give Him your life. Make radical, obedient sacrifices to Him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Obedience is worship. So worship your extravagant God with extravagant obedience. Third, worship with uh, uh, extravagant love for God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're commanded to love God with all we have. And this should be the heart of our worship. It really should. Our worship should flow not from obligation, but from a heart of, of joy in the Lord, of gladness as they, as they had in Israel when they were dedicating the temple extravagantly. And if this is a problem for you, if this love, a sensing, feeling this love for God with your whole being is a problem, and, and I would uh, guess for most of us, it often is. For many of us. For, for me, it often is. Then we need to, uh, to go down on our knees. We need to confess our sin of not loving God as He deserves. And we need to cry out to Him to, to change our hearts, O oh God, that we might extravagantly worship You with a heart of love. Worship with extravagant love. Fourth, worship with extravagant sharing about God. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. God is honored and glorified as we tell others about Him, about what He's done in our lives, about what He's done for all peoples, about what He will do to those who trust, for those who trust in Him. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost world is extravagant worship. It's glorifying Him. Finally, fifth, Worship with extravagant songs of praise to God. Sing praises to God, O you saints, and give thanks to His holy name. This is probably what we think about most when we talk about worship. Singing praises, songs that honor and glorify the Lord, songs that extol His virtues and enumerate, list out our inadequacies, our need for Him. According to the book of Revelation, and this may be why we think of worship in this way. This is what we're going to be doing for all eternity. Get prepared. Worshiping God with songs of praise. So that's what we're going to do right now. Together as a body of believers. So This has been leading us to this time. Together as a body of believers, I want us to sing extravagantly, praising the Lord. And as we sing, just reflect. Just reflect. On Jesus, your extravagant Savior. Reflect on ways you can worship Him with your life. Giving to Him. Obeying Him. Loving Him. Sharing about Him and praising Him. For He's the one. Jesus is the one who showers uh, upon us grace and faithfulness and mercy and love. And so much more. And He's the one who deserves your extravagant worship. Would you pray with me? as the worship team comes forward. Father God, thank You. 
Thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness, just for who you are, your holiness and your righteousness and your willingness, your willingness to dwell among us, your willingness to dwell within us, Father. Amazing grace to forgive us, to have mercy on us, Lord. And we cry out for your mercy. Lord, just thank you for Jesus, for his sacrifice for us. Lord, allow us during this time, during this time to to reflect on you and to sing praises and honor to you, that this would be a time of extravagant worship here in, in in this small place among this few people, that we would be able to extravagantly worship you, that your name would be honored and glorified in this place at this time. In Christ's name, amen.